Well, after that, I think we could just go home. That was, that was fabulous. It was really great. Thank you so much, the worship band. This is Palm Sunday, and uh, a, a milestone day in our Christian faith. And um, I think it's, a, it's always been odd to me, though, since we're, we know the whole story. And those people who were there the first Palm Sunday had no idea what was going to happen in the following week. You know, the, there was going to be a, a somber goodbye from Jesus. There was going to be the terrible tragedy of the cross. And then finally, the day that made all the difference, Easter. Last week, Chad highlighted the first nine verses of John chapter 12. It tells the story of Jesus being at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and having dinner. And uh, they were interacting with everyone in the room. We're told that people in the community heard what was going on. They started to come around the house, trying to peek in, trying to see what was happening. They seized the opportunity to try to see Jesus and, and get a glimpse of Lazarus. Jesus was a celebrity. Word traveled ahead of him where he was going. People came from all over to try to see him, try to, to get closer to him, try to get behind the ropes uh, of, that were uh, cording other people off, in a sense, from the, the culture there. Lazarus was a curiosity, and they thought, well, they could take a glimpse of him as well. People wanted to see behind the scenes with celebrity. How many of you have ever encountered a true celebrity, either one-on-one -on -one or in close proximity? Maybe in an airport or some other setting, you've had that. And it, it, it's weird how that feels, how there's sort of that, that excitement and enthusiasm, and, and uh, it just a, is an interesting experience all around. Our son Jordan is a singer-songwriter in Nashville, fortunately a very successful one. And uh, he and his buddy received a call about three weeks ago from the head of entertainment for corporate uh, functions with Delta Airlines. And they asked Jordan and his buddy to come to Augusta at the Masters and uh, be the feature uh, performers for one night with this big corporate event. So they were there last Tuesday, did the event, and then hung out around the Masters for a day or so. But one of the things that was Jordan was found most interesting and, and meant the most to him was the being behind the ropes. The corporate executive team from Amazon came in, there were other celebrities coming in, and Jordan and his buddy got swept up in that group because they were behind the scenes. They were there and being a part of the recipients of all of the food, all of the great food, and all of the logistics and how people uh, treated that whole group. And he said it was just a, an experience that he'll probably never have again that way because he was behind the ropes. He was there with the celebrity. Jesus was literally in the house. In the middle of the dinner, Mary pours a very expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet. We discussed this last week and, and what a, a generous gesture it was, but you may remember that Judas takes the opportunity to try to appear more righteous than everyone else. And he comments that the, the perfume should be sold and all the money given to the poor. Have you ever been around anyone or have you found yourself seeing what somebody's doing with their money and, and you sort of judge it and, and think it's not as generous as it should be to others? 
Well, Jesus says that we'll always have the poor with us, and he tells them that you won't always have me here with you. Mary's gesture was a celebration of Jesus' presence. There's always time to support the poor. Before we go further with the Palm Sunday story, I want to expand around this money question. Many people enjoy judging how other people spend their money. In a former church, there was a Bible study group that was talking about a number of things, and one of the women in that group was the head of a nonprofit in the area. And at some point in that conversation, she became very frustrated and expressed her frustration at the wealth that some people have in our country. And some of them, it's extraordinary. And she believes that nobody should have that kind of wealth or money. And she remarked that we need this and we need that for our nonprofit. We're not getting enough funding. We're not getting enough resources from others. And someone wisely in the group said, you don't know how they're spending their money. They may be diverting billions to philanthropic purposes and and giving in ways that you never know about. Or the person next door may be doing the same, and, and you just don't know. But there's a tendency that we have to sort of judge in our own perspective, what somebody should be doing with their money. Well, Jesus, in his reaction to Judas in that setting, demonstrated that honoring someone and supporting those in need are both valued and needed. I want to ask you this morning about your relationship with money and resources. How do you use money and resources in your relationships? With your spouse or or your partner, or with with your children and friends. Let me illustrate what some people do. I've known several women who, after the death of their husband, discovered that there were extensive resources that they owned, but she was not aware of it. The husband, several times, of of several people, the husband kind of used money as a reason not to do many things. We don't have enough money to build that that uh, room on the house. We don't have enough money to take that lifetime vacation, item after item, and then she realizes doing all of those things and more would have never put a dent in their resources. Well, to me, this is the ultimate misogyny, denigration and, and control of women. It falls well short of genuine love. How can anyone successfully explain how this bears any resemblance to the generosity and grace of Christ? Now, this doesn't, isn't limited to men, of course. Some women also have a, a distorted view of money and use it to control certain re- relationships. Men and women who have a strong passion for frugality, listen to this carefully. Many men and women who have a strong passion for frugality are serving money just as much as the person who sacrifices everything to get more. For both the extra frugal person and the person chasing more, money is everything. We see that in marriage or parenting, God calls us to a love that affirms and brings wholeness. It doesn't diminish diminish the other or put arbitrary limits on them. We must use all of the emotional physical, and yes, financial resources to affirm and encourage those we love. 
If we are truly Christ followers, our actions must, not should, answer the question we've recently discussed. What would Jesus do through me? That's the question. Well, back to the story. As mealtime wound down, Jesus and the disciples began to make plans to head to Jerusalem the following morning. I looked up the journey on Google Maps, and this is what it looks like. A little less uh, than two, uh, two miles, and, and little, I mean, little, about eight miles, and a little less than a two-hour walk. You can see on the screen here that there are two routes, the upper one and the lower one. It reminded me of that uh, Scottish song about Loch Lomond. It has a little thing in the back that you take the high road, and I'll take the low road, and I'll be in Scotland, or in this case, Jerusalem, before you. Even if it's only one minute, I will be there before you. Let's imagine what these events would look like today and how the story might be reported. Imagine Anderson Cooper reporting from the scene. This is what he says. It's early morning here in Bethany. You can see behind me a crowd coming from a local neighborhood where Jesus is reported to have had dinner late last night at the home of close friends. An inside source who is close to Jesus told me that Jesus' friend Judas stepped out of line, almost ruining a special moment when Mary poured perfume on Jesus' feet. According to the source, Judas was outraged at the waste of $60,000 worth of rare perfume. Jesus apparently rebuffed Judas. And shortly after the meal, word began to spread that Jesus and his entourage were preparing to leave for Jerusalem and the Passover festival the following morning. A growing number of people continued to gather in the streets and this morning began making their way to Jerusalem, hoping to find a prime viewing location to watch Jesus enter the city. Apparently, many people in Bethany's crowd posted on Twitter and Instagram about Jesus. Here's a picture of the crowd gathering in Jerusalem. A little fun way, but maybe that's how it would be today, if it was today. Today's call to worship highlighted the praise and of palm branches. The crowd was gathered, and Jesus starts to make his way into town. Let's pick up the story in the scriptures. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this, and only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the, from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is, how, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Well, Let's take a look at that crowd in Jerusalem. Faces in the crowd. Now, in every crowd that gathers, and certainly these that are sort of spontaneous and a mixture of all kinds of folks from different races, different sects, different uh, education levels and all of that, there are all kinds of personalities in the crowd. But we know that there's typically always a skeptic. You know any of the... Don't raise your hand to identify here. But we know that there seems to always be a skeptic that's going to speak up. That's the Judas in the room in the sense of, 
of just pointing out something that's so uh, different than what's actually going on and calling out about money and, and that kind of thing. I'm skeptical about this. I, I think other things should be done. Well, the skeptic, as a definition, is a person who questions the validity or authenticity of something purporting to be factual. And we learn that skeptics cling to a negative perspective and miss possibilities. This verse of Scripture kind of brings it to the point. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Well, skeptics tend to be about what they don't believe instead of what they believe. Tossed to and fro by the wind because they're not anchoring themselves to anything specific. They just know what they're not going to reach out and cling to. That's the skeptic. Well, next, we find the curious. I've found one even dressed in Ted Lasso blue. The curious, that, that person who is marked by a desire to investigate and learn. Marked by an inquisitive interest in others' concerns. We find that, that those who are curious know how to discover the truth. That is so important. Think about that. How do we get to the truth? How do we learn about others? How do we, how do we understand what's really real and deep and meaningful in life? And it comes out of that curiosity to continue to ask questions and learn. That's what the curious do. Next, one cannot, this is a passage of scripture about this, one cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose a holy curiosity by Albert Einstein. He didn't write any scriptures. I misspoke when I said here's a scripture about this. This is good enough to be in there, I think. Never lose a holy curiosity. Wow. I think of the children back there and others, and, and as children, how curious we were, and we're learning about things, and we finally master something. It's like children want to watch the same video over and over and over because they know it. They, can, they feel control because they've mastered that. And we need to be curious in a way that leads us to that kind of of, of confidence in what we know. Next up, we have the optimist. An optimist is, is a person who is inclined to be hopeful and to expect good outcomes. Now, Lainey tells me that I'm the eternal optimist, and I won't argue with that. And sometimes that's very good. Sometimes it's very helpful. And sometimes it helps me see light when there's mostly darkness. But there are also times when it can get you into trouble when the train's coming, and you just say, well, I don't think it's going to run past me. I, I think it's okay. I think it'll stop. Well, that's how I would tend to view that. Laney would be on the phone calling for the ambulance to come and pick me up. But that's what the optimist is, that, that person who's inclined to be hopeful. The optimist embraces possibility until none remain. The optimist wants to, to stay in it until all possibilities have been exhausted. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. That's the, the, 
the mantle verse for optimists. Always protecting, trusting, hoping, and persevering. Well, next we find the pessimist. Don't point any fingers. The pessimist is a challenge to me. Think about that. The optimist and the pessimist. And uh, I just don't understand. I don't know how to, to deal with that kind of, of pers- perspective. Pessimist is a person who is inclined to expect poor outcomes. Anything's going to happen, and it's all possibilities are out there, and they can pick out and isolate the very one that is maybe least likely to happen, but that's what they grab onto. And think, well, you know what, how that's going to turn out. It's going to be this. Well, pessimists are slaves to the worst and reject hope. Think about that. I, I hope you don't have a, a natural personality that leads you that direction because that person, are, are, you're a slave to the worst of things and reject hope. Well, that's where Christ comes in for all of us. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's not a pessimistic statement. That's a statement of hope, of of enthusiasm, of confidence in what God can do. Now, Chad and I were talking about a a phrase earlier this week, and I I think I've shared about this in, in previous sermon, but that phrase is that all things happen for a reason. I don't believe that. I don't believe that a child is tragically killed in an auto accident and God has some reason that that happened. I don't believe that God necessarily intends for some man to come in and tell his wife that, that he's leaving her and, and they're getting a divorce. I don't think God had that intended. I don't think he had a reason for that. We could go on and on with things that people experience and people have sort of in good faith, tried to say something kind, and they said, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. And tell that to the woman that we knew in Louisville whose husband was tragically killed in an auto accident when her kids were small. Imagine being at the funeral home, and and she's there, and someone comes up and says, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. How can you say that? But we can say this. When stuff happens, bad things are going to happen. We are in a fallen universe, in a fallen world. People get sick and die. Tragedies happen. Wars happen. Terrible things happen to people. But God didn't do that because he had a reason for those things. God says, in all things, I will work for the good of those who love me, and who have been called according to my purpose. In other words, whatever horrible things happen, The resurrection is the sign that God can do anything of the worst that can happen. The worst tragedy of the crucifixion being turned into our salvation. That is the ultimate example of what God can do. And finally, we find a believer. A little child raising her hand in celebration. Believers... Or someone, a believer is someone who has confidence in the truth, existence, or reliability of something. Someone who has faith in something, especially a religion. Believers pursue possibilities. They are curious about truth, and they embrace 
hope. So important. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What is our inheritance? It says, for those of us who believe, to the believers, by having this attitude about truth and hope and, and embracing the truth of Christ, redeeming us to God, what is the result of that? We are in a special family. Not a closed family, not one that keeps anyone aside or pushes anyone away, but a family that invites all to enjoy and to celebrate the reality of God in us working in this world to bring grace and peace. That's the family we're a part of. That's the right that we have to be in that family, to be sharing that truth and be uh, messaging that to those around us. Well, you look at this crowd. Which one are you? Amen. Amen.